people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam. As ever, I'm joined by Alex. Hello, and we are here with Ben Lorber, who is a research analyst, um, who's written a really good, in- an interesting article about Nick. Fuentes, uh, who's a figure who has kind of appeared in the peripheral vision of this show, mostly because we focus on the UK, um, but he is uh, increasingly internationally relevant and there are increasingly kind of um, international connections between uh, the UK and American foreign politics uh, as well, which we'll get into in the show. But just as we were setting up, you mentioned uh, the ongoing collapse of democracy which I guess is a, a very broad and kind of general idea, but I just wanted to see what was it that you meant concretely by that? What is collapsing in democracy? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I would say that like, you know, what I would refer to as the collapse of democracy, there's almost, there's almost two levels. There's the, um, the collapse of democratic infrastructure, the infrastructure of democracy, which we've seen, you know, for a while with the GOP, um, you know, restricting um, voting, like particularly, you know, impacting and targeted to impact African-American and minority communities in democratic areas. Um, And we've seen that that process um, accelerate since the January 3rd insurrection, uh, you know, where, um, where state and local and national, you know, GOP elected officials are purging local election boards and replacing local election officials with pro Trump, pro Trump loyalists, essentially to, um, you know, to be able to, uh, to make a more compelling version next time around of the big lie that, you know, the, the right won, you know, the, the, the presidential election or whatever election they're essentially, you know, really kind of disintegrating at, at a very local lever, uh, level, the very uh, infrastructure of our multiracial democracy um, at, and then on an ideological level, you know, the uh, with with President, you know, former President Trump stopped the steal movement right after he falsely claimed that the presidential election was stolen for, for, from him, you know, culminating in the Capitol insurrection in January 3rd. Um, we're seeing a very you know attack on the very idea of democracy, right? With, you know, two thirds of Republicans still still believe opponents of Trump, right? Stole the election from him, according to polling published in November. And we're seeing, you know, in, in, increasing, you know, re- revisionist accounts of January 3rd that are being echoed on Fox News, right? With Fox News host Tucker Carlson, who we'll probably talk about more in this episode, the, uh, the highest rated cable news sh- show, um, his nightly news sh- show broadcast to millions. He puts out these, these documentaries that, that basically try to revise the, the history of January 3rd, while many on the right are glorifying, you know, the insurrection at the same time as a kind of heroic uh, gasp of, you know, the forgotten Americans um, or things like that. So, you know, so really it's a broad assault on the very idea of multiracial democracy. That's, um, that's the, that's very concerning to, um, you know, to those of us in this country who are, um, who are hoping to save that democracy. There's a particular figure who we're going to be focusing on today, which is Nick Fuentes, um, who's, as I said in the introduction, almost certainly familiar to listeners of the show, uh, at least kind of um, in the distance. He was famously at the uh, Charlottesville uh, rally, um, and he's been a kind of figure that's been growing and growing and growing in the far right and trying to, in some ways, do what the alt-right never could. So this is Alex's framing, um, which I think is really, really on point, which is that the alt-right attempted entryism into the Republican Party, Richard Spencer, you know, and so on, attempted entryism into the Republican Party in order to take it over. And they failed, and they were kind of rebuffed in lots of ways. That after Charlottesville, although Trump never really repudiated them, their support was taken to be less significant, there was a shift in the power inside the kind of Trumpian White House and so on. What Nick Fuentes has been advocating for 
is what he calls this America First agenda, which is a much harder right republicanism, essentially. Um, although I think there's also some elements of kind of a, a right-wing anti-capitalism, which I'd like to discuss with you um, as well. How do you see the difference playing out between, on the one hand, the alt-right's attempt at entryism, and now Nick Fuentes' attempt at entryism, which, to my mind at least, from across uh, the Atlantic, has been significantly more successful in actually gathering support from various members of uh, the Republican Party itself, and also in setting the agenda for the wider kind of swarm of influencers on the far right that kind of go beyond the Republican Party as well. How do you see the difference between those two things, the alt-right and the America First movement? I think it's also quickly just to jump in, like the difference between Richard Spencer and Nick Fuentes isn't that actually that big. They're both pretty anti-Semitic. They have these like quite explicit white nationalist um, politics that they say quite explicitly. They both kind of subscribe to a kind of great replacement theory or, or and I would presume certain policies like mass deportations of non-white people, they would both subscribe to as well. So they're quite similar figures in many ways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that, Alex, that there's a danger um, in playing in to Fuente's own self-narrative by by trying to, you know, by by setting Fuentes and Spencer as, you know, highly distinct characters. I think the one meaningful difference um, or one of the meaningful differences is that whereas, you know, Richard Spencer like, tended to ground his, you know, ideal, uh, you know, of whiteness um, in a kind of like, you know, um, non, uh, you know, non-Christian, you know, U- European, if not like, you know, neo-paganism, um, a kind of like, you know, celebration of, of, of the supposed like restoration of European or Greco-Roman ideals of whiteness. Whereas, you know, Nick Fuentes uh, will ground his, his conception of white identity, um, you know, in Americanism, uh, you know, but um, that's one of the differences, but yeah, essentially uh, in a lot of ways, I would say the 2016, 2017 alt-right almost, you know, burst onto the scene too early to, to accomplish its mainstreaming strategy successfully i you know but i think they were the opening salvo i i think during the trump presidency the the establishment right you know very quickly um realized it had to distance itself from the new alt-right you know and that would only increase we saw the first signs of that obviously when when richard spencer was videoed um doing his kind of hail trump hail our people hail victory stunt right right after uh, uh, trump's inauguration i believe um you know that that made national headlines like unite the right made national headlines and the um the the murder of heather Heyer shocked the world and the chance of jews will not replace us um at unite the right shocked the world and even more so uh as a wave of, you know, kind of accelerationist, um, you know, mass shootings, you know, that really, um, the, that really was kind of the nail in the coffin. And, you know, while Trump was in power, I think um, most of the GOP really tried to distance themselves. And we saw that right when Iowa Representative Steve King was roundly denounced by his GOP colleagues for saying in an interview something like, you know, white nationalism, white supremacist. How did that become? How did those words become offensive? Right. I thought that we were supposed to take pride in our European ideals. Right. So Steve King was roundly denounced by his his GOP colleagues and stripped of his committee assignments, whereas in 2021, when Paul Gosar went and spoke at Nick Fuentes' AFPAC 2 conference in Orlando, Florida, um, there was barely a peep from his GOP colleagues. And I think that that four years of Trumpism have, have really moved the Overton window such that the, the, the core ideas at the heart of white nationalism are no longer, are increasingly not so controversial. I think we're going to see that, you know, more and more in 2022 as our midterm elections around the corner. Like we have Fox News host Tucker Carlson, right, using the very term great replacement on his show. We have um, more and more politicians like Matt Gates adopting re- replacement rhetoric. Right. So Nick's ideas aren't as controversial, uh, you know, and also I think the the, the right is in a defensive posture right they always are going to view themselves as the underdog but more than ever like when they're not in power you know um in the white house and in both you know um both houses of congress at least for the time 
being their their tendency now is to circle the ranks and protect their own and they don't want you know there's a there's there's increasing pressure not to quote unquote cancel um anyone from the ranks of the conservative consensus right there the right is angry about you know so-called deplatforming right now right after especially after trump lost his twitter account um they don't want to call for people to be to be deplatformed. And I also think that when Paul Gosar stands with Nick Fuentes and refuses to back down and suffers very little backlash for it from his colleagues, that shows that the strategy of naming and shaming white nationalists or the connections of, of saying something like, hey, politician, the, 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 like you were photographed with so-and-so white nationalists. You know, do you denounce? That strategy carries less and less weight you know, at a time when it's not so controversial, um, are they not going to apologize for it? That's one of the really crucial points, and I thought was really perceptive in your piece, is that this shift in what you call the Overton window um, has allowed for certain tactics to uh, of anti-fascists, namely this kind of naming and shaming, associating conventional Republicans with uh, their white nationalist kind of colleagues. Um, that tactic is, is, is no longer as, as, as effective. I think that's a really kind of um, important point in the in the piece. You mentioned, of course, also uh, I'm going to do this annoying interviewer thing where I pick up on like a single phrase in something you said and be like, that's what I'm going to ask a question about. So you said while Trump was in power. And I wonder what you think that the return to a certain kind of apolitical Biden passivity in politics at large has lent to this particular strand of the far right. Does it give it a sense of insurgency, of radicalism, of counterculture, of you know vibrancy that Biden obviously can't muster? Um, and therefore, are we back in a kind of a late Obama era when there was a sense of kind of boringness to politics, which Trump really managed to kind of blast his way through? And therefore, does the, is, 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 is Biden being in some ways so mundane <laughs> at least uh, in my view, um, an important component of Nick Fuentes' ability to challenge the status quo. Yeah, I think that's definitely that's definitely part of it. I, you know, I think yeah, there's um, th- throughout the GOP the you know the insurgents, right? The kind of more radical wing of the establishment, right? You know, is gaining an ascendance and more than ever is setting the agenda. Of the broader right, and I think that you know Trump, um, uh, you know Trump helped set this in motion with his his denunciations of you know the rhinos or Republicans in name only, uh, you know, and the conservative establishment, and even more so now that they are out of power, uh, you know, on the national level. Um, there's really, you know, a battle uh, going on right now within the establishment, right, on who. Is going to inherit the mantle of Trumpism? Who is going to be able to define themselves as the future of America first? You know, and um, because the base of the party is clearly going to lining up behind America first, right? So who's it going to be? Is it going to be the 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 kind of like neoliberal establishment consensus that's epitomized perhaps by someone like Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy that you know was. Um, that has long reigned or and even held significant power during Trump's you know, presidency or, you know, in my view and in the view of most observers, the energy in the party is actually in the America first wing, epitomized by people like like Paul Gosar, who has endorsed Nick Fuentes or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates, right? The kind of stalwart firebrands pro-Trumpers who are increasingly adopting more and more radical rhetoric and are increasingly allying with more far-right forces such as, you know, Nick Fuentes. Um, And yeah, I think, I think part of it has to do with the kind of boring quality of, of mainstream politics epitomized by Biden. And I think like a lot of it has to do with the fact that Biden does represent a neoliberal consensus, which is, um, which is increasingly uh, like dead and which, you know, Trump was able to, you know, to tap into widespread dissatisfaction with 
the status quo, you know, as did Bernie Sanders on the left. But I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, the kind of the kind of passivity, the lack of uh, ability of, you know, the, you know, of Biden and the Democrats to deliver on even the barest campaign promises um, and their active attempt to smother the left wing like flank of the democratic establishment as compared to the right, which is embracing its far right flank and being led by its far right flank, I think is a disturbing, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, bellwether and a reason why we have to kind of revive and to hope to, to bolster like a militant left that is really um, fighting the battle for hegemony and you know, trying to, uh, yeah, 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 to essentially save our democracy because I think a lot of the, the insurgent energy um, in the country stands to be captured by the populist right in the next few years. I, I guess thinking about another kind of insurgent movement that's what the Republican party, thinking about the Tea Party waves of, of um, uh, in, uh, in, like two, in the midterms in 2010, 2011, and how much that did remake the Republican Party and how, you know, elements like, you know, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio are still around today and have this kind of lasting power. It's, it's, that, it's that kind of long-term wave that will have the effect, I think. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, people like Nick Fuentes are, you know, very, very attuned, to, you know, to these transformations on the micro level and are positioning themselves on the rightward flank of the rightward flank of the GOP, you know, in a way, you know, in other words, like, you know, the point I tried to make in my piece is not that, you know, a year from now, all of the kids at Turning Point USA conferences are going to be uh, to be grapers. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think he has these definite influence on the kind of cluster of civic ultranationalists of, 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 you know, of, of, people who are are trying to take the GOP in an even more nationalist and populist like direction, you know, these like self-styled outsiders and insurgents whose politics aren't as radical as Fuentes and they're not outright embracing his racial nationalism, but they're flirting with it. And I think, you know, the Fuentes is strategically positioned, you know, as a self-styled outsider who's able to frame himself as the most banned person on the internet, who's claiming he's been put on a no-fly list by the federal uh, government. Um, he's, he's able to, you know, to brand himself as the, the, the quintessential outsider. And he's, he's seeding these white nationalist ideas on the, this America first flank of the establishment, right? You mentioned uh, Paul Gerstow, uh, US congressman. And um, we first became aware of Paul Gerstow when he aligned himself with another far-right figure who's put himself as the most banned or the most censored uh, guy in the world, Tommy Robinson. There's a lot of competition for that title. It's yeah, a very, it it's a very popular, very popular I th- title. I thought, I thought Laura Luna was the most banned person, but... Uh... No, apparently the mantle has passed, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so that, that's when we, he, he came and he, he flew over and he spoke in London on the massive free Tommy demonstrations. Who is Paul Gerstow for for us UK people who've only had a very fleeting introduction to him? So uh, Paul Gosar has long been one of the more uh, like radical um, uh, uh, Trump supporters within Congress. Uh, You know, several of his own family members actually have recorded campaign ads, uh, 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 you know, calling for him not to be to be, um, you know, to be reelected. He, yes, he did. Um, he gave a speech, you know, with Tommy, Tommy Robinson at an anti-migrant demo in the UK in 2018, I believe. He's been photographed with many European uh, nationalists. He, you know, he famously suggested that the Charlottesville rally might've been staged by George Soros on Fox News, right? So he's long been, um, you know, highly embracing of the conspiratorial, uh, you know, rhetoric um, and the conspiratorial, you know, far right movements that have been in ascendance um, during the Trump era. And he was one of the earliest, most enthusiastic uh, backers of Stop the Steal, right? Stop the Steal leader Ali Alexander called him the, the spirit animal of their movement. Um, many exposés are now saying that he played a really key role as one of the, the, the key members of Congress, ultimately, 
you know, backing or even helping to orchestrate the, the, the attempted insurrection on January 3rd, right? So he's long been kind of celebrated as one of the stalwart America firsters. And I think it's, it's no coincidence that, you know, that Trump's um, first rally this year, looking ahead to the 2022 midterms, is going to be in Arizona. You know, I think you know, Gosar is helping to set the the tone and the 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 direction of the post-Trump GOP. Even if he, you know, in many material senses, he's not the most he, you know, he's not the kingmaker in the GOP. Right? He was stripped of his his committee assignments recently, actually, after he posted a, 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 an anime video that depicted him you know, um, murdering his fellow house colleague, progressive, you know, um, uh, progressive Congress person, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? So he, he, he's not necessarily, you know, the kingmaker. He, he's not the head of the establishment, but I think he's a, he's a favorite, again, among this America first wing of the GOP. And so he's, he's helping to set the energy and the spirit um, of the future of the party. And as a detail in my piece, he's flirted. He's been, you know, he, he spoke at Fuentes' conference, you know, in February 2021. And he, um, he seemingly planned a fundraiser alongside Fuentes and he never really, you know, backed down. Right. He, he kind of made like little comments like, Oh, I denounce white racism. Oh, I might, I wasn't aware that this fundraiser was going to take take place but he he continually retweets uh, uh agroper accounts today he's um he, he's on gab the alternative you know social media site used by the pittsburgh synagogue shooter in 2018 he's he's retweeting white nationalist leaders uh, uh like vincent james fox right he's using like you know, alt-right memes. He's essentially, you know, he's essentially uh, branding himself uh, like as a griper these days, which I think shows you where a lot of the countercultural momentum is on the American first wing of the right. So Nick Rent is, is very obviously an anti-Semite. Um, Paul Gosar as well, I, I'm assuming, but I don't know anything much more about him than, than you just told me. So um, I was wondering, where do you think anti-Semitism fits within the broad uh, tendency of um, this kind of insurgent movement on the on the far right of the Republican Party. The Republican Party is obviously a racist party in lots of ways. Um, it's uh, obviously and conspicuously and explicitly racist about you know kind of Hispanic people, Black people, Muslims, uh, the Chinese, and so on, um, and of course communists who kind of uh, in some ways encompass all of those for some uh, baffling reason. Anti-Semitism is is a um, uh, is, is a real dividing line in some ways. Um, where do you see the possibility of this kind of being broken? Do you think it's possible that there would be a large anti-Semitic kind of um, explicit part of the US Republican Party? That seems like a real, in some ways, like transformation of the party. Where do you think that might go? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's something that that certainly uh, uh, like keeps me up at night sometimes, and I'm far from the only one. I think, you know, Gosar standing by Fuentes is one sign of the seal maybe starting to, you know, to be broken uh, you know, on this. I mean, the fact that, that go, you know, that, that Fuentes is a well-documented anti-Semite who doesn't even hide it. I mean, there are some, you know, kind of, you know, mainstreaming, um, wings of the you know people adjacent to the white nationalist movement maybe who might hold th these beliefs but they'll express them in coded form right Fuentes is not one of those and the fact that Gosar's uh, when he's called to, to denounce this says like ignore the tactics of the left don't let the left like define our strategy and our coalition and our alliances means that he's he's welcoming uh, uh, Fuentes and the ideas that Fuentes carries with him into the conservative tent. And I think that's really dangerous. I think as of yet, um, explicit anti-Semitism is still kind of a red line that like a lot, you know, of, of the establishment, right. Are kind of unwilling to cross, uh, you know, I, you know, uh, but at the same time we're seeing, you know, Tucker Carlson using, you know, you know, great replacement rhetoric that elites are, are trying to replace uh, like legacy Americans, right? And the first, like when 
when Carlson used replacement rhetoric in April 2021, the ADL called him out on it, the Anti-Defamation League in the U.S., which is you know a Jewish organization that actually has a very spotty track record. It's not really my, it's a longer story. I don't really support the ADL, but they they called him out on it and. Uh, you know, and the next day, you know, Tucker Carlson made a made an attack on the ADL that mirrors what white nationalists say. Right. He said, hey, ADL, how can you support, you know, robust nationalist policies in Israel, but not support these policies in the U.S., essentially? And that really mirrors the classic white nationalist argument that Jews like support strong borders uh, and ethno nationalism in Israel while while engineering the great replacement and open borders in the U.S. And so the fact that, you know, that the the, the leading right wing figures are able to take that that model and express it in coded form against the ADL, I think, is very, very disturbing and a possible uh, like bellwether of where things are going. I think there's a lot of other trends in American society that, that make me skeptical that um, in the next few years, open anti-Semitism is going to become more more acceptable. I think there's still a very strong stigma, you know, against that from um, from the 20th century, right? And I think that um, you know, there's a sizable right wing flank of American Jews. I mean, there's a lot of factors, but but I definitely think you know, right now we're already a, in a moment where where significant sectors of the conservative youth movement are either publicly embracing. Fuentes or kind of, you know, saddling up alongside him or, you know, kind of watch his show um, and aren't public about it. Right. And so I think a lot of leading conservative activists, especially in the, the, the America first flank of the campus, right, uh, you know, are are influenced by Fuentes. And I think we are seeing that process. And you, yeah, I I mean, you know, in white nationalism, obviously, anti-Semitism is how they articulate a politics of anti-elitism. It's how they st- structure their worldview. Right. Um, it's how they kind of identify the prime motive force right behind white dispossession. And, you know, as you know, across the the establishment, right, um, we see coded or implicit anti-Semitism, which, you know, some might argue isn't even implicit. I still think it's appropriate to call it coded, right, um, has become completely normalized. I mean, you know, I remember back in 2016, we all would gasp at like George Soros, like conspiracies. Nobody even gasps anymore. It, it's old news that you know that that the right attacks you know George Soros as the hidden hand behind non-white immigration and Black Lives Matter and cultural Marxism or whatever. It, it's no longer even controversial. Um, and so I think a lot of this kind of implicit you know anti-Semitic anti-elitism has become normalized, and that that does create a fertile environment where in the future one can't imagine a scenario where it becomes a lot less um, implicit pretty quickly. I'm wondering about what makes it, what makes it about the Republican party that makes it susceptible to these kind of insurgencies, these insurgent movements like the Tea Party and like America First. If you think about um, the Democratic Party, and this is a bit outside the remit, but it's interesting to think about how the two parties compare. There was like two left-wing insurgent waves Maybe the same wave, but two attempts at it, which was 2016 and the 2020 primaries. And they were pretty effectively completely rebuffed. Um, you know, Biden had this, in some respects, good rhetoric on, on certain issues and has completely dropped it now that he's in, in office. So I wondered, what is it about the Republicans that makes it so, them so susceptible to this? I mean, I, I would say it's, you know, my, my response, my, my instinct is to think about it less in terms of like the Republican, you know, party as an institution, though I'm sure there are many people who are more careful observers of the GOP than I am, but, um, but, but the underlying, you know, kind of structural transformations in American, you know, uh, a society. I think the right um, in the U.S. has been patiently building its institutions for 40 years with a long-term uh, like plan to build power, right, in many ways by forging an alliance between, you know, uh, between Christian uh, you know, fundamentalists and their key issues like abortion and the kind of, uh, you know, free market, like, uh, you know, the libertarian neoliberal interests, right? The right has been building for 40 years and the left hasn't been 
been building in the, the same way, uh, you know, for a lot of different different reasons. Um, and so I think the uh, the the political scene in the country has been drifting r- rightwards, right? Uh, and the Democratic Party, since the you know since at least in the you know the era of Clinton and likely even earlier, has embraced the the the, the agenda set by the right, you know, of neoliberalism, welfare reform, right, tough on crime policies. And so I think. You know, overall, with you know, in the wake of you know two economic like crises in one generation, you know, the the right is a lot stronger in the U.S. The left is is getting on its feet again, and I'm really encouraged by by developments like the Democratic Socialists of America and progressive politicians like the squad and the broader upsurge of the Black Lives Matter uprising in 2020, and of course before that, and a lot of other encouraging like, developments, but we're still very much on the defensive and playing catch up. And so I think, you know, the it's we're in a, a, a scenario, as I said, where the democratic establishment is blocking the growth of and the influence of its radicals and is trying to undercut them and purge them at almost every turn while the right is being led by, by its radicals. And I s- see it as a, a reflection of kind of, you know, this broader, uh, the, this broader positioning. There's a sense in some ways that the Republican Party, as you say, uh, is an alliance, and therefore it also embodies a kind of contradiction. And I wonder how you see that kind of contradiction being kind of spelled out. On the one hand, it has its uh, extremely religious wing. On the other hand, it has its kind of free market capitalist wing. And Nick Fuentes has been very good, in particular, I think, at managing to articulate that contradiction and then kind of push through it and find the more radical position on the other side, namely a kind of right-wing anti-Semitic anti-capitalism, as you were saying, like you described it as kind of a anti-Semitism as a kind of a um, anti-elitism, which I think is, is completely correct. So I'm kind of wondering, how do you see the terms of that contradiction playing out in the alliance that Republicans have built between, on the one hand, Christians, the other hand, free marketeers, and so on? Because to be you know, just perfectly explicit about like how these two things actually interact, the free market, <laughs> because it is free, and because people have like all kinds of desires, all kinds of things they want to be able to do, uh, does ultimately uh, destroy and degrade uh, traditional morality. That is just a kind of a, a fact. I think it's a it's a, a staple of uh, of good materialist analysis of the dynamics of capitalism. Uh, if you look at the last kind of four hundred years of the development of capitalism in you know Europe and globally, that is exactly what has happened. So it's not like a kind of a an isolated um, tendency. So how do you see that contradiction as playing out in the future? Or do you think the contradiction is somewhere else? Yeah, I, that's a really good question. Uh, yeah, I think as you s- say, like one one key development, um, you know, after the, co- you know, the collapse or disintegration or whatever word you want to use of the alt-right in 2016, you know, 2017, was that, you know, a lot of them embraced like traditionalist Christianity in a way they hadn't before, right? I, I think, you know, someone like Richard Spencer, I think maybe it might have shared the ideas of someone like, you know, Nietzsche that that Christianity was a slave morality or whatever, uh, you know, or they, um, they, they considered themselves like above it, they tapped into kind of like an older kind of pre-Christian, you know, you know, conception of whiteness. But I think, you know, Fuentes and many others, you know, many others have followed him, such as Milo, like Yiannopoulos and many others have now embraced, you know, a kind of, of Christian, you know, you know traditionalism that, uh, that places them on the cutting edge of the, you know, the energy where the Christian right is going. They've, they've synthesized uh, uh, Christian nationalism and white nationalism. And so the, they're positioning themselves as even more anti-LGBTQ than um, the mainstream conservative movement, and they're they're thumping their Bible while they do so. Even as a lot of them, like like Fuentes, have actually very th- a very you know thin commitment you know to Catholicism in a lot of ways, or at least not really a fully developed like theology. There's the, the there's you know the the sense that he's kind of performing it. And as you say, I I, I think this points to um, yeah he's he's marrying you know a Christian. You know, traditionalist ethos, which also allows him to, you know, to frame his anti-Semitism in a register that more Americans are willing to hear. Like, for example, like, uh, like during one of the, uh, during one of the Stop the Steal rallies, uh, 
in December 2020, um, the Million MAGA March um, in, on the streets of Washington, D.C., um, he was thundering into his his megaphone. He was name dropping the like Jeffrey Epstein and George Soros. And he was saying it's the, the satanic globalist elite versus us, the, 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 the people of Christ. Right. So he's he's very adept at using, you know, the the trappings of Christianity to kind of modulate his anti-Semitism in new registers. Um, and to your question, I think that, yeah, you know, I think that increasingly on the America first wing of the GOP and in these, the, 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 uh, these kind of insurgent like nationalist and populist movements, uh, people are questioning free market orthodoxies people are you know people are you know people like uh, like josh hawley are picking up on these these kind of um, of trends of calling for a kind of like protectionist welfare state that would uh that would actually maybe help medical uh, help middle america or right they're talking about it infrastructure projects right they're kind of they're trying to reject the neoliberal consensus at least in theory and propose a kind of economic like nationalism um you know but it, it remains you know, uh, you know to be seen like whether this is all rhetoric and empty talk or, or, or whether they're actually deeply committed to you know, to this project and as you say you know uh, uh, i think the the rise of the christian right christian uh, nationalism and appeals you know, to traditionalism arise precisely out of a neoliberal uh, moment where the foundations of structures, you know, like the family are being torn apart by market forces in a lot of way. And so we definitely, yes, this rise in, in, in traditionalism, this revanchism is very much created by, by a crisis and neoliberalism. Um, so I would agree with you there. One of maybe Nick Fuentes' most, I mean, perhaps the only thing that Nick Fuentes actually really kind of does uh, is produce content. And I want to kind of think about him as like a content producer and how he kind of engages with uh, the ongoing crisis of just like everydayness that we are kind of living through in that we, we live in ultimately kind of distracted times uh, and in some ways like experientially very very poor times very kind of like uh, desiccated times um and nick Fuentes just produces an enormous amount of content for people um that can they can kind of fill their day with they can fill their their, their kind of life with and um you know there's lots of talk of course about podcasts in particular as kind of having a certain parasocial quality and so on i find it baffling that anyone would want to be nick Fuentes's friend but they obviously they obviously do and they obviously like to imagine that's kind of part of his his appeal in particular though and this relates back to what we we're saying about kind of contradictions in the Republican Party. There's a sense in which Nick Fuentes is a kind of edge poster, right? Like um, think about like the dynamics of kind of 4chan in 2016 and so on, right? There's a kind of a sense in which like being the most edgy is in some way the, the way to get the most attention. People at that point loved the kind of anti-SJW, anti-kind of leftist memes where they kind of exposed some sort of contradiction in the left. They found someone who wasn't able to articulate kind of left-wing positions particularly well. Uh, and they were like, aha, you see, the whole thing is, is, is a kind of a sham. And then what Nick Fuentes has been able to do through the growth movement, who you mentioned earlier, is turn that energy, that turn that kind of like, aha, here are the contradictions into um, back onto the Republican Party. And in doing so, produce various kinds of, of kind of content from that. Um, this means this kind of viscerality of his content means that despite being plat deplatformed, and he has been deplatformed quite widely, he's actually more popular now probably than ever. Um, so I was wondering, what, what do you think gives Nick Fuentes' kind of content such a kind of a an intense appeal, even outside his capacity to organise politically by influencing members of the Republican Party directly? Yeah, I mean, I was really, you know, I was really, um, uh, you know. Uh, uh, inspired by the formulations that that you two have articulated in the post-internet far right about the relationship between influencers and the swarm, uh, I think a lot of it applies very well to you know to Fuentes. He's been able to kind of build uh, this. Um, he's he's been able to build you know a cult of personality around himself, really um, from the you know the dregs of the alt right from you know uh, from elements of the incel community from elements of disaffected campus cons conservatives from all you know from all all kinds of these corners of the far right uh, the internet he's been able to 
to construct a cult of loyalty around him, himself and the Groper ecosystem. In many ways, it's a, a thriving ecosystem apart from, from Fuentes. Because right after all, the Groper is just the rebranded Pepe the Frog, right? From the 2016, 2017 alt, right? So, you know, as far as I know, Fuentes, you know, certainly didn't invent, you know, the term, you know, uh, the term griper and, and griper as kind of a, a self-identity among, um, you know, the four channers uh, preceded him, right? As did the term America first, right? Fuentes, in many ways, both these terms, a griper and America first are larger than Fuentes, but Fuentes has been able to kind of wrap them around himself and i think that's very strategic and metapolitical um and especially in the america first um way of things i mean you know fuentes has a very easy and direct way to say we are america first everyone is trying to be america first right now like paul Gosar, mitch mcconnell is trying to be america first right so when you know fuentes calls himself america first that, that's very strategic but yeah you know the griper ecosystem um uh, is characterized by you know a lot of smaller uh, yeah, you know influencers, almost a swarm of influencers, as you describe in your book. That um, the Fuentes has you know, been been able to to kind of put himself on top as the kingpin, and he's he's launched his own streaming platform, much like Alex Alex Jones's uh, platform, where he can you know his his streaming platform, which is called Cozy TV, now has you know, over two dozen other far right streamers in addition, you know, you know, to Fuentes and he's adding more, right? So this, you know, in the face of massive deplatforming, right? Like, you know, last month, you know, most of the Groypers were finally kicked off of Twitter, right? So now all they can do is go to Gab, which, you know, uh, you know, Gab is growing, right? More and more GOP politicians are joining Gab, right? Gab has a lot of energy. At the same time, like Gab is an awful social media platform with an awful interface and is almost unusable as an actual content creation machine. So, uh, you know, Cozy TV f functions, you know, as you know, for lack of a better term, a cozy place. I mean, it's hard you know, to call any of this stuff cozy, but when I go on there, I see a micro community being built in real time where these, where these anonymous, you know, disaffected young white men and increasingly a lot of non-white men, you know, too, which I'm planning, you know, to write further about this phenomenon of non-white, of multiracial white nationalists in the Graper movement. Um, they are able to kind of, you know, hop back and forth, you know, between many different streams and kind of build a micro community together. Uh, and so I think, yeah, Fuentes is great at, at positioning himself as kind of a victimized, you know, leader for the, 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 this kind of countercultural like presence on the Gen Z right, where, um, yeah, many people, you know, very much identify with him. You know, they very much um, they record him, uh, you know, birthday messages. They, you know, his suffering becomes their suffering in a way. He says, I'm the most censored. I'm the most victimized man. It's so hard to do, you know, my job. I'm very lonely, right? I think a lot of, you know, white, you know, young suburban like you know, disaffected uh, white men who are very alienated um you know in the postmodern like malaise of our society where there are no job opportunities and there's no sense of uh a future for all of us i think you know they uh a lot of those guys you know go go to the gripers um and find a kind of you know sense of embattled bruised community um that is the, the the that's very powerful and potent. Kind of similar um, to how in the UK, Mark Collette is building a similar kind of network of content creators and similar white nationalist community building. Um, you, you mentioned in the piece about deplatforming losing some of its potency. We've already seen an example of how that is. You know, there's an ability on the internet to create your own platform, and of course, you don't get to like interact more directly with the mass of libs and and you know normal people. Um, but you still get to have that platform and get to build a community around it. What are some of the tactics that you think uh, are going to become more effective or should be practiced as well as deplatforming and this naming and shaming and stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, uh, you know, I sometimes struggle with thinking of concrete 
you know, advice I would give to counter the, 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 the grapers other than, oh, you know, we need to build a, a fucking militant mass, you know, you know, left movement that, that, that can win, you know, that can like fight the battle for hegemony and offer folks a future in this country, which I think is the main thing, right? Because um, they, you know, are that they, you know, they are, you know, increasingly in 2021, we've seen the Grapers hold conferences. We've seen them hold in-person meetups, which are announced beforehand. We've seen them hold a few confrontational rallies. And I certainly think the, you know, many of the tactics of, of direct confrontation that um, that the left used uh, the, like during the Trump era you know, against the alt right and, and the Proud Boys and militias are, are still very 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 much relevant here. But um, yeah, I would agree that the established tactics of naming and sh- shaming and deplatforming are losing a lot of their potency and might continue to do so as the right that builds its own more efficient um, social media infrastructure, you know, as, you know, losing one's Twitter account is, is, you know, increasingly seen as a badge of pride on there. And don't get me wrong, right. It's still effective to deplatform these folks in many cases, right. You know, Fuentes, even though Fuentes has almost as many followers on Gab as he had on Twitter, uh, Gab is still not, not nearly as effective for him. On the one hand, like it allows him a more dense kind of echo chamber, but on the other hand, it, it's no substitute for, for, for participating in mainstream discourse at the way he could um, on Twitter. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, in the long term, the, the um, you know, we can't rely on the national like security state, to, you know, to beat a movement you know, like Fuente has, and the Grapers. In fact, if it is true that the federal government put Fuentes on a no, no fly list, not only is this an unconstitutional infringement on his civil liberties, but it also massively backfired, right? It's helping Fuentes construct a cult of personality around himself as the most, you know, v- victimized like, conservative. Um, so, you know, I think at the end of the day, like we, you know, I, um, I get the most hope from, you know, essentially movements on the left to, you know, you know, do what Fuentes is doing on the right. Like, not that we should use him as a model, but to really kind of contest the, uh, you know, to contest the moribund, you know, liberal establishment and to mainstream, um, you know, a broad, uh, you know, left vision of an inclusive, like we the people that, that fights for meaningful, uh, like racial and economic, uh, and, and social uh, justice in a language that, that that millions can understand, and in a way that that brings you know people hope for their future, and in a in a way in which everyone can kind of see themselves included. I think that's the ultimately the only way that we can stop the increasing far-right lurch that's, you know, impacting our entire country and is an existential threat, you know, to the very future of our democracy. I know that's a little more broad than you were, might have hoped, but... That's, that's great. Point. No, that, that's, that, that, that's that's really excellent. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. And thank you for reading our book as well. That's really, uh, really touching. Um, we will have you back, no doubt, to talk about multiracial white nationalism. Do you want to give us a little taste of what you're researching there? Oh, yeah. Well, just, um, uh, you know, we've uh, by now, I think those of us who follow the right uh, pretty closely are used to the phenomenon of non-white folks in groups like the Proud Boys that espouse a kind of, you know, civic nationalism. Um, You know, but but I think what I've been increasingly surprised by is the um, the non-white folks in uh, in some cases, like self-identified Latinx and brown folks, and in some cases, the black folks, um, who are who are part of the Groper movement, um, and who argue explicitly for the main the maintenance of a white demographic majority, you know, in the U.S., you know, the you know, 
And it's not the first time that white nationalists have made alliances with non-white white nationalists out of like a shared sense of like racial, you know, separation. But I think it's it's very unique that the, the Grapers are able to build this, you know, inc- this multiracial white nationalist movement that that includes the possibility of non-white folks and they you know they're tokenized in a similar way right as happens on the establishment right with someone like candace owens where they say like look look at this black you know person who supports us how can we be white nationalists or nick fuentes himself whose last name is fuentes and who has described himself as 25 percent mexicans saying you know on the one hand, he vociferously uh, identifies as a white person. On the other hand, he also says, how can I be a white nationalist if I'm not even white, right? So I think they're they're building a very interesting coalition. And I think it could be a bellwether that, you know, in the future, as counterintuitive and disturbing as it might sound, like we might see right-wing commentators of color explicitly arguing for the maintenance of a white demographic majority um, in the U.S. And I think, you know, the the phenomenon of multiracial grapers is kind of a bellwether of this this transformation that I think might occur. You've often made a distinction uh, between civic and ethnic nationalists, right? Uh, It seems like what you're describing there is something like a merger, like a way in which the two get kind of played off against each other that strengthens ultimately the ethnic nationalist side of that. Yeah, yeah. And Fuentes and the Grapers are very adept at kind of speaking in both registers at once, right? They'll the talk about the, like preserving uh, like the American you know, nation and they'll they'll adopt the like, civic nationalist like, language sometimes, but there's always an ethno-nationalist component at the core and they don't hide it, right? They ultimately are very intentional about, you know, kind of inserting it in there. Um, while kind of speaking in a register that more conservatives are ready to hear at the same time. Yeah. But thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a great admirer of your work and this podcast, and it's been wonderful to talk to you too. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Yeah. It's Um, been super interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Really good. Um, Do you have anything you'd like to plug before we go? Yeah. Yeah. Plug yourself. Oh, um, um, you know, not so much, actually. I, I, I would just, uh, yeah, yeah, not so much. Nothing really. We'll put the article okay, in the show everybody, notes. Everybody read the article. <laughs> discussing. It's really good okay, and comprehensive. Great. And so that's what we're going to plug. There we go. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. Hello and welcome to We Will Remember Freedom, a monthly podcast of anarchist fiction. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. Hello and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. Hello, and welcome to the jingle for both of my podcasts. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. You can find my podcasts wherever you get your podcasts or get them from the Channel Zero Network. Twelve rules. (laughs) 